0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, episode 66. Last week, I wrapped up the history of the Edomites and also covered what little we know about the Horites. Finally, I summarized, well, not that briefly, the narrative of Genesis chapter 37, a turning point in the historical story found in the Old Testament. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm plowing through the history of chapter 37, covering a little bit of agriculture, specifically the harvesting of grain. Also, I'm taking on the history of the Ishmaelites, the people to which Joseph was sold as a slave by his loving brothers. So let's get started. The first question that came to my mind when reading the first part of the chapter was, What is a sheaf? The term arises in Joseph's dream, which he recounts beginning in verse 6, where his brother's sheaves bow to his. Well, a sheaf is nothing more than a bundle of grain stems bound together after harvesting. The process is generally used to refer to wheat, barley, or oats. When grain is first harvested, it is reaped, essentially cutting the stem from the root and usually using a scythe or a sickle. The sheaves are bound together using a sort of cord, made from the stem material, and are stacked together in what is called a stook. When they are stacked, the stems are arranged vertically, with the seed heads aligned. And this alignment serves several purposes. First, it keeps the seed heads off the ground, and allows the grain to dry. This was usually done via an upright sheaf that was left in the field for the sun to do its work. And as you could imagine, this works exceedingly well in an arid climate. Sheaves also make the crop easier to handle and sets it upright and ready for threshing and winnowing. That's when the wheat is separated from the chaff. So how was this done in Joseph's time? Well, it required a team and a group of brothers would make a great team if only they could get along. Anyway, a single mower could use a scythe to cut a field of grain clockwise, which, if you think about it, is a quite modern way to describe it. Do you think they said sundial-wise? I digress. The mower would start from the outside edge and slowly spiral towards the middle forming what you could think of as ancient crop circles. With his scythe, if he were skilled, he would place the cut stems to his left, leaving the seed heads aligned. The other team members would follow behind and tie the stems into bundles using spare stems. The cut sheaves would be gathered together to form what were known as stooks and prepared for separation. This was the process then, and believe it or not, it's still in use today in less developed areas of the world. Think of that the next time you see a combine harvesting grain. What used to be a slow, team-based, manual process is now combined into a single process that can be accomplished by a single person driving a single machine. Next in the chapter is the city of the Shikam. Both the city and the man who shared the same name were covered in previous episodes, Specifically, Chapter 2, Episodes 59 and 60. Moving along. Next in Chapter 37 is the town of Dothan. And no, this isn't the small city in Alabama on the way to Florida's Gulf Coast. The Biblical Dothan was located to the north of Shechem, which I apparently previously incorrectly pronounced as Shesham. I'm sure that won't be the last time I slaughter an ancient name. Anyway, the town of Dothan was about 60 miles or 100 kilometers north of Hebron. Eusebius, the 4th century AD Greek historian, said it was about 12 miles or 19 kilometers north of Samaria. In terms of modern political and physical geography, it would be in what is currently the Palestinian territory, just a short distance from the west bank of the Jordan River, about midway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. As you would suspect, especially if you worked this far through the podcast episodes, archaeologists have identified a tale which they believe is a depository of artifacts of the ancient city. It is in this chapter of Genesis 37 that the town merits its first mention in the Old Testament. It was here that Joseph found his brothers after his father Jacob sent him to check on their welfare. Of course, since no other place is mentioned at this point in the narrative, it's also assumed to be the place where his brothers threw him in a well, then sold him to a passing caravan of Ishmaelite traders. Later in the Old Testament, this time in Second Kings chapter 6, it is the place where the king of Aram's henchmen found Elisha, and where they were subsequently struck blind. The town also warranted several mentions in the book of Judith, But these notations tended to focus more on its proximity to the Plain of Esdraelon, presently known as the Jezreel Valley. Later, in the outside historic record, it appears the city served as a center for the administrative government functions, as excavations have uncovered many buildings and inscriptions that tend to show these government functions. And other than that, not much is known about the town of Dothan. Next in chapter 37 are the Ishmaelites, who in this case were traitors, with a D, to whom Joseph was sold by his brothers. As their name implies, they were assumed to be the descendants of Ishmael, Abraham's son through Hagar. Ishmael, according to both Genesis chapter 25 and 1 Chronicles chapter 1, had twelve sons, whose names I know I'll mispronounce, so I'll spare you. But the list can be found in chapter 25, beginning in verse 13. A few sentences later, the text reads They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. As you would correctly suspect, Ishmael and his descendants warranted mentions in the text of other religions from the region. For example, and bear with me for a minute, but this is hotly debated among historians and Muslim scholars. Anyway, a Samaritan book known as Asatire is potentially dated to the 3rd century BC. This book claims that after the death of Abraham, Ishmael reigned 27 years, and all the children of Nibayat ruled for one year in the lifetime of Ishmael, and for 30 years after his death, from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates, and they built Mecca. For thus it is said, meaning in Genesis chapter 25, These were the sons of Ishmael, and these are the names of the twelve tribal rulers according to their settlements and camps. Quote. And here is the debate. Other modern scholars of the era and region claim that the passage really isn't from the 3rd century B.C., as its usage of the Aramaic language is more like that used by the 11th century A.D. Samaritan scholar known as Abhista. Either way, given the generally accepted dating of the events of this era in Old Testament, they were recorded in the Samaritan book a minimum of over 1,000 years after their alleged occurrence. Josephus, who by now should need no introduction, claimed that the sons of Ishmael lived in the region from Euphrates to the Red Sea, and called it Nabatine. And, this area is essentially the same as the Levant, Mesopotamia, and the northern portion of the Arabian Peninsula, which is similar to the location in the Samaritan book and not terribly different from the area mentioned in Genesis chapter 25. And, Josephus' spelling of the word slash name Nabateen is only slightly different than the people we currently refer to as the Nabateans, who lived in the same area and are most well known as traders. They are also the same group who built the ruins found at Petra. But, there's a slight rub. Petra was built around the first century BC, and Ishmael is thought to have lived some 1700 or so years earlier. Now, of course, that is not to say that it was not his descendants who eventually became the Nabataeans, but that would be similar to comparing Constantine to the current residents of Istanbul. The Targum, which was a 1st century BC translation of the Torah to the Aramaic language, stated that the territory of the Ishmaelites ran from the Indian Ocean to the Nile Delta in northern Egypt to Assyria. Finally, a 14th century AD Ethiopian writing, yes, the country in east-central Africa, claimed that they lived in the Levant and Arabia. So, if you align all the sources, it's pretty clear the descendants of Ishmael inhabited the same region that would later be controlled by the tribes of Israel and some of the surrounding territory. And remember, inhabited doesn't mean the same thing as controlled. Archaeologists have uncovered evidence of the existence of their kingdom, too. Both Assyrian and Babylonian royal inscriptions, as well as Northern Arabian inscriptions, all dating to between the 9th and 6th centuries BC, mention a king known as Kiedar, and this aligns with the second son of Ishmael in Genesis chapter 25. I'll circle back to King Kiedar in a minute. These artifacts claim he was both the king of the Arabs and the king of the Ishmaelites. What is not known is if he was king of a united kingdom or if the terms Arab and Ishmaelite were merely synonymous. The Assyrian royal inscriptions also note the names of six of his sons, specifically Nabat, Kedar, Abdil, Duma, Mesa, and Taman and four of these align completely with the text of Genesis 25. One of them is off by one letter, and the last one is off by two letters. As for the other six found in Genesis 25, who knows? Then, ancient, meaning 1st century BC, Greek artifacts list a sign known as Jesser, which is really close to the Genesis 25 name of Jeter. Curiously, this son was not on the Assyrian artifact. Now back to Ishmael's second son, Kiedar, spelled alternatively with a K and a Q. It is assumed that his descendants eventually became the Kedarite Kingdom. The Kiedarites were a primarily nomadic, ancient Arab tribe. Actually, they weren't really a single tribe, but more of a semi-tight confederation of tribes. And now that I say that, in my mind at least, it seems like you would have a hard time being a single group, let's say a kingdom, when you live nomadically. Being a confederation is probably about as organized as you can get. Some researchers consider them to have been the most organized of the Northern Arabian tribes. Whatever that means, and however that is measured. Their power is thought to have peaked around the 6th century B.C., At that time, they controlled a large region between the Persian Gulf and the Sinai Peninsula, which is essentially the northern portion of the Arabian Peninsula. Outside of the Old Testament, archaeologists have uncovered Neo-Assyrian inscriptions that also name the kingdom. Now, these have been dated to between the 8th and 7th centuries BC. These inscriptions specifically refer to a group that revolted against the Assyrians and were subsequently defeated... There were also Chaiterite kings who paid Assyrian monarch's tribute. Among the list was a Chaiterite queen, known as Zabib, who was also listed as a queen of the Arabs. Now, in this case, Arab may be more of a geographic than ethnic reference. Similar ancient inscriptions referring to the kingdom have been found across the region, documented in both Aramaic and Arabian inscriptions. Finally, there is written documentation of their existence from both Greece and Rome, even from such well-known figures as Herodotus, Pliny the Elder, and Diodorus. Of course, like almost all peoples throughout history, and especially of this region and era, their influence and power eventually waned. What is not known is if they ceased to exist as an independent group entirely, as in they all died off or if they were absorbed into another group, similar to the Horites and Edomites. My thinking is that they were absorbed. In the last few centuries BC, they interassociated with the Nabataeans, which aligns with what Josephus wrote. The current theory is that they were integrated into the Nabataean kingdom sometime around the turn of BC to AD. This belief is bolstered by the knowledge that the two groups shared both a geography and many aspects of their languages. Finally, at least for the Qatarites, in Islam, Ishmael is thought to have been the forefather of the Arabs. In fact, traditional Islamic history holds that his first two sons were of even greater importance than the rest of the lot. These two, specifically, Nibayoth and Qaydar, are alternatively assigned, depending on the scholar as the specific ancestor of Muhammad. Finally, many Muslim scholars read Isaiah chapter 21 as predicting the coming of a servant of God, who is associated with Hyadar, and interpret this as a reference to Muhammad. This passage, in the New Revised Standard Version, reads, In the scrub of the desert plain you will lodge, O caravans Adedonites, bring water to the thirsty, Meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of Tema. But a couple of verses later it reads For thus the Lord said to me, Within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end, and the remaining bows of Kedar's warriors will be few, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. End quote. Which finally brings me to the influence of Ishmael on Islam. Al-Makrizi, a 15th century AD Egyptian Muslim historian, wrote that Moses essentially destroyed all the non-Ishmaelite Arabs, including the Amalek, who were descended from Esau, and the Midianites, descended from a later son of Abraham. So why would a Muslim historian write this? Well. First, it could be true, but also this allowed all the Arab tribes to have then been descendants of Ishmael. Of course, it may not align with the Old Testament conflicts between the Kingdom of Israel and the Edomites. Also, other Islamic historians, in this case, Hisham ibn al-Kabi and al-Sharki, maintained that all Arabs were descendants of Ishmael. Early Islamic scholars tended to divide the Arab tribes into three distinct groups. First, there were what were thought of as the ancient Arabs. These were peoples who inhabited the region prior to the influx of Ishmael's progeny. Tribes such as the Aid and the Thamud either disappeared or were destroyed. These tribes and their destruction were used by Islamic scholars as examples of God's power to abolish those who failed to follow the Islamic prophets and messengers, as instructed in the Quran. Next, there were groups of people referred to as pure Arabs, who usually hailed from South Arabia. These people were thought to have descended from Khatan, who was descended from Adan, who was a descendant of Ishmael. The Cottonites were thought to have immigrated from what is currently Yemen on the southwestern side of the Arabian Peninsula and traveled towards more central Arabia. This immigration was believed to have occurred after the destruction of the Marib Dam. As a sidebar, since you probably never heard of it, the Marib Dam, at least the one from that era, not the modern version, existed from as early as 2000 BC to the late 6th century A.D., when it was finally breached. Considering its size, and that it was in use for well over 2,000 years, it's considered a major engineering feat of the ancient world. The water it retained was used to support agriculture in the predominantly arid region, and with its failure, The people who had lived in the area dispersed across the greater Middle Eastern region to places as distant as Syria and Iraq, a distance of over 1,800 miles or 3,000 kilometers. And this occurred in the 6th century AD, just as Islam was launching. Now back to the descendants of Ishmael. The third group, according to Islamic scholars, were known as Arabized Arabs. I'm assuming something was probably lost in translation as the phrase, in my Native American English, is both redundant and confusing. Among this group were many Arabic tribes that not only existed when Muhammad was alive, but are there to this day. Tribes such as Asad and Imarhij, this group, meaning the Arabized Arabs, was thought to be the ancestors of Muhammad himself. Two other tribes, those of Mahad and Nizar, were mentioned in a Nabatine artifact known as the Namara inscription, which has been dated to about 325 AD. A very early Islamic writer from the 8th century AD named, and cut me some slack please, as I'm not a native speaker, anyway, his name was Abu Jafar al-Bakar, and he wrote that his father, Ali ibn Husayn was told by Muhammad himself that, quoting, the first whose tongue spoke in clear Arabic was Ishmael when he was 14 years old. Purported literature from Greek sources also made the same claim, albeit the source of the claim is rather indirect as the only reference to it I could find was not Greek but was instead in Arabic. Anyway, the source claimed, quoting, Ishmael grew up among the Jurhum tribe, learning the pure Arabic tongue from them, though the Jerhum who spoke an ancient form of Aramaic. When grown up, he successively married two ladies from the Jurhum tribe, the second wife being the daughter of Mudab ibn Ammar, leader of the Jurhum tribe. Ishmael could speak only ancient Egyptian and Hebrew, of his parents before his marriage into the Jerham tribe, whence he spoke a language derived from all three languages, which sounded better than all three and became God's language. quote. And the interesting thing about the quote, to me, is the way it ends, with a definite statement on what is God's language, and considering it allegedly comes from a Greek source, we're not talking about the Greek god. We're talking about the Islamic God. Anyway, other Islamic historians posited on the definite genealogical link between Muhammad and Ishmael. They tended to draw from both biblical and extra-biblical sources, such as ancient inscriptions, as well as Arabic oral tradition. Even medieval Jewish scholars sometimes identified Qadar with both Arabs and Muslims there are other scholars that disagree with the link between Muhammad and Ishmael. But, it is beyond certain that Muhammad did exist, and he did descend from someone. And Ishmael also existed. And according to Genesis 25, his descendants settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria, which is the region that Muhammad hailed from. So, it's at least possible that he was from the house of Ishmael. And, to sum up, in Islam, Muhammad descended from Ishmael, and in Judaism and Christianity, it was to the descendants of Ishmael that Joseph was sold by his brothers. All descended from Abraham. Just one big family, not always happy with each other, and with individuals far more numerous than the visible stars in the sky. Moving along. So, back to Genesis chapter 37. In verse 25, we see that the Ishmaelites were traveling from Gilead to Egypt. I covered Gilead several episodes ago in chapter 2, episode 58, so no need to rehash here. If you skipped that episode, or perhaps don't remember it, go back and give it a listen. The history of Egypt is coming very soon. Embrace yourselves. It'd take a while. And after the mention of the Ishmaelites, we see that they were preceded by a group of Midianite traders. And the known history of the Midianites is not very extensive, but would push this episode past my self-imposed time limit. So, I'll end the episode here. I'll get to the Media Nights, as well as a place Jacob called Sheol next week. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at Podcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, I hope you will go to iTunes, or wherever you receive the podcast from, and leave a positive review. This games the iTunes algorithm and helps others to find the podcast. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.